0: And I would like to repeat one thing to make Cleve feel at home. My name is Dr. Gene, and I haven't had a drink of whiskey or mind-altering pill for 2,710 days. And for that, I am truly grateful. That's the, way, that's the way they do it out west, you know. I met Cleve about eight years ago this month. He remembers that better than I do. I, I, maybe I made a bigger impression on him than he made on me. I'm not right sure. As a matter of fact, he was reflecting last night at some length about those days, and I finally escaped and went to bed. <laughs>
1: He's
0: a very fine man. He comes from Warwick, Oklahoma, and in Warwick, the most prestigious civic organization is Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: <laughs>
0: it's quite an experience. He's one of the most compassionate men I've ever known. I remember one time Tish and I were visiting, he and his lovely wife, Nell, at their home, and I'd gone to the bathroom, and as I walked out of the closet, <coughs> I heard him say with a great deal of compassion, well, I'd put that son of a bitch on the bus, and I'd take his identification and his money away from him and buy him a one-way ticket to Bar- uh, Brownsville, Texas. <laughs> I asked him one time if he had represented me in the grievance I had against the Memorial Hospital of Southern Oklahoma, and with love, he said, hell no. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted him to sponsor me, and he refused to do that. He said that it might work, and he wanted to keep me around as an example of what it used to be like.
1: <laughs>
0: He's a fine person, and it's an unusual privilege to introduce this morning Cleve, and here come the judge. <laughs>
2: Thank you much, Gene. Jean. I want to thank you first for the starting of this meeting today as we start things in our gypsy group back in New Rico, Oklahoma, with this period of meditation, followed by the serenity prayer. <clears throat> Just a few moments before I had to get up here and sit down, I was talking with Jim and Dupree, And I said that I couldn't think of one thing that I was going to say this morning. And this does leave an empty feeling in one's uh, gut, you know, when he knows he's going to have to get up and say something. And as we sat there in this period of meditation, I was still blank. And I said, well, God, it's, it's up to you. I'm turning this one over to you. And uh, I didn't have this hole in my gut anymore. So I feel pretty good this morning. I'm real happy to be here. I also thought during this period of meditation about the answer that Ethel Waters gave a lady one time when, you know, Ethel Waters sings with Billy uh, Billy Graham's Crusade. And this lady said, Ethel, how is it? that month after month and year after year, the Billy Graham crusades get bigger and better. And old Lethal says, Well, God don't sponsor no flops.
1: <laughs>
2: so we're going to have a good conference and we're going to have a good meeting this
1: morning, I hope. <clears throat> I told Jean earlier this morning
2: that when I saw him in his suit with his tie, his beard, the distinguished-looking gentleman that he is, in all of his sagacious demeanor, that he bolstered my faith in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, I want to thank the committee for permitting Nell and me to be with you at this conference, the roundup, and uh, and share a little bit of our experience, strength, and hope. Before I go further, Nell, would you stand up? I'm going to be talking about Nell, and this is this is Spouse Nell right here. <laughs> if I had it all to do over again. I would never, if I was going to be the practicing alcoholic that I was, I would never marry a girl named Nell. Now you think about that. What is more pitiful and pathetic sounding than little Nell? (laughs) Next time, with no reflections meant, it will be someone named Agnes or Gertrude, or Arbutus, you know, you can get your teeth in a name like that. (laughs) But seriously, I do want to thank you for permitting us to be here, sharing with
1: you, because right now, each of you is the most important person in my sobriety.
2: You know, when things are as good as they have been, we we tend to forget what it used to be like. And we tend to forget what happened. And we tend to forget our many blessings that we enjoy every day. So if it were not for people like you,
1: I might tend to forget. And if I forgot, I might tend to drink again. And if I drank again, I would get drunk. And if I got drunk again, I might never get
2: sober. And if I never got sober,
1: I'd die. So I want to thank you for being here, sharing with me today, and saving my life. I am from...
2: Puerto Oklahoma. It's the largest cattle county in the state of Oklahoma, right on Red River. We have five times as many cows as we have citizens. I was born to a devout Methodist mother. We lived right across the street from the Methodist church, and every time a door on that old building open, we were there. Sunday school, church, Epworth League. Wednesday night prayer meeting. Some of my earliest recollections are sitting around the table after dinner in the evening, reading a few passages of Scripture.
1: Now, I was born to a rabid, democratic father.
2: He was really something. Some of my earliest recollections of my father were going up and down the section lines tacking up political placards for one of his favorite candidates. He had quite a philosophy in life, my dad did. Uh, he told me that uh, nothing was impossible, that I could be anything I wanted to be, enjoy any distinction I wanted to enjoy. He said, no trails too steep. No goals too high, no dream impossible, if you're willing to pay the price. If you're willing to pay the price. He had another real good saying, too. He used to tell me it didn't cost much more to go first class, just about 500%.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <clears throat> but now I grew up in the Dust Bowl days in Oklahoma to the depression time. And I was willing to pay the price for a lot of things. That was back in the days in the afternoon when you got out of school. I had two radio programs that we used to listen to. One of them was Little Orphan Annie and the other one was Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. And I fancied myself as Jack Armstrong. I took part in every activity that our school system offered and because I wasn't the largest boy in my class, I tried to make up for this uh, with my other talents. I paid many a price, but I, in my schooling, I won a lot of gold medals, too. I was a dash man on the track team. I won medals scholastically in dramatics and in music. And I quarterbacked the winning football team. I was an Eagle Scout. And all of this uh, ended abruptly on December the seventh of nineteen forty-one. I was a senior in high school. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I couldn't wait until I was eighteen and a half years old, at which time I went into pilot training. And I ended up a nineteen-year-old second lieutenant flying combat in Italy. I used to fly those airplanes. Like a 19-year-old drives a chimera today.
1: <laughs>
2: I lived through the war, and I got back and enrolled in the University of Oklahoma, and again, because I was willing to pay the price, from January of 1946 until September of 1949, I completed the equivalent of seven years of university and I graduated with a Bachelor of Laws degree. Now, my senior year in law school, little Nell, and I got married. (laughs) And when I graduated, because of my father's influence, I was given an appointment as a government attorney in Tulsa. And we moved to Tulsa, and we lived it up for a year. Then we moved back to my hometown when an opening presented itself. I became the youngest judge of a court of record in the state of Oklahoma. Moved back to Jefferson County and became county judge. Now sometime between 1950 and 1960, give or take days, months, or years, it really doesn't make any difference because I drank too much too often. I developed a physical allergy to alcohol
1: that resulted in... uh, an emotional dependency, and I became totally, in all facets of my life, dependent upon beverage alcohol.
2: Now, I tell you this because I wanted to introduce myself properly. You see, I can say that my name is Cleve Largent. And I am a Democratic, Oklahoma Methodist, veteran, alcoholic attorney. (laughs) But because this program of Alcoholics Anonymous works for me, I haven't had a drink today. Because of people like you, I haven't had a drink today. And for these blessings, I'm very grateful.
1: I am uh, today
2: a judge of a District Court, Court of General Jurisdiction, Trial Judge, State Judge in Oklahoma, and Little Nell uh, is Municipal Judge in Warwicka, and also City Judge in the uh, town of Ryan. And she says, Have robe, will travel. But uh, and I tell you that Nell is a judge because I wanted to liven things up a little bit and tell you the joke about the cross eyed judge. It seems this old cross eyed judge was sitting up high and mighty one Monday morning and they brought in three Saturday night drunks. And he looked at the one on the end and he says, What's your name, son? And the one in the middle said Harry Brown he said I didn't ask you nothing and the one on the other end said well I didn't say nothing (laughs) I never tell that one but what I think about the old cross-eyed rooster He was chasing a couple of hens around the barnyard, and the old hen turned to the young one and said, we better slow up and run together. He might miss both of us. (coughs) You know, all we recovering alcoholics like to sit and look back You know, with us, it it wasn't possible that what happened to us did. And we uh, sit and mentally review what things were like before things got like they were. And uh, I just, even today, can't understand how alcoholism just took in and and swept, swept my life away from me. Because I'd always been pretty independent, and I could, uh, you know, really get in there and elbow, and and most of the time get what I wanted. But then you read in the big book that uh, booze is no respecter of person, position, intelligence. It makes no difference. It's a common denominator, and it denominated me. My first real experience with alcohol was during... World War II when I was stationed in Italy. Now, I went overseas as a B-25 pilot, and I got over there, and because I was so young and unattached, as were many other young fellows, we were about 99% expendable, and they put us in an outfit and attached us with the Office of Strategic Services. We were stationed in Brindisi, Italy, It was an English base, and it operated under orders out of Cairo, and it was our job to fly resupply missions to Tito's Partisans and Mihailovich's Chetniks in northern Italy and Yugoslavia, Albania, and Greece. Those guerrillas, the resistance forces, had 14 German divisions tied up in the Balkans, and we handful of pilots with our resupply missions of guns and ammunition and gasoline uh, kept them pretty well bottled up down there. It was during this time that uh, I found out what alcohol and adrenaline will do for someone. After my first mission, we had been up into northern Italy, and this was a pair drop. We dropped three agents. That went in to formulate a uh, partisan mission behind the lines and their radio equipment and other supplies. We came back over the seaport town of Ancona, Italy, and threw out propaganda leaflets. This is something else we were privileged to do. And we were flying in an old C-47 that night.
1: It's aluminum
2: gas tanks, no guns, no armor. We always flew our missions alone, unarmed, and unescorted. The citation said. But as we went over Ancona, we were about 1,000 feet so that they could really get the pamphlets where they wanted them. And I, I was flying co-pilot that night, and I turned to the pilot, and I said, isn't this kind of low? He said, "Ah, oh, you don't have to worry about those 88-millimeter guns. He said, they can't fuse them this low. Well, they couldn't. But when you got about two miles out of town, they could lay them down on you, I'll tell you that. And they did. We landed. We had 17 big holes in the airplane, big ones. And we went in to debriefing, to intelligence. And on a table just such as this, there were fifth bottles of booze and glasses just as this. And we could pour ourselves a glass of booze. It's called a combat ration. Well, I drank my full glass of Gibson's rye whiskey. I never will forget the brand. And uh, went in to the intelligence uh, officer. And uh, now the reason they gave us this is some of the boys were so nervous and upset that they just couldn't really talk. But when that good rye whiskey hit my adrenaline, uh, I became a motor mouth. (laughs) I uh, I told that intelligence officer more about that mission than he was even interested in. (laughs) And in the history of my squadron, I was the only pilot officer that they ever asked to leave debriefing. (laughs) But I got back to the squadron area about uh, daylight and as some of the officers were coming into the mess hall for breakfast, I went down to the other end of the building and beat on the bar. The uh, building served as both club and mess hall. And by nine o'clock that morning, I consumed huge quantities of vermouth and cognac and Italian gin and Italian rum and I got real sick (laughs) and they took me over and put me to bed in the tent and it was June in Italy and it was hot and I can only say it was fortunate that the tents were not floored or carpeted (laughs) by noon I couldn't keep water on my stomach by mid-afternoon I couldn't even keep air on my stomach but I swore never again would I do this because I knew that it was the, the gin and the cognac that did this to me. Now, we had a deal. Now, this is serious. Uh, a standing agreement, gentlemen's agreement among the pilots, that if you flew five missions without taking a combat ration, they would give you a full fifth. Well, we did this. It was a kind of a game. Ounce-wise, this won't figure out. But we had an awful lot of young 19- and 20-year-old boys that didn't get back from their fourth to get their fifth, you know. And I used to take that fifth and my ration of Cokes for the month. It's funny, you get more booze than you could get Cokes. And it was good booze. It was three feathers, three feathers, And uh, colored and flavored with wood chips. I'm sure some of you drank that. Bella's. But I'd take that fifth and my Cokes, and I'd get my old Army 45 and a Jeep, and I'd drive up the Adriatic coastline and find me a pretty little spot of beach. Not as beautiful as your beach here, but uh, a nice spot of beach. And I'd quick draw that old 45 and I'd shoot those sand lizards. And I'd drink that Bella's, and I was Dick Tracy, (laughs) or Tom Mix, or Hoot Gibson. And after I ran out of ammunition, I'd walk up and down the beach and deliver dramatic declamations to the pounding surf, and I became a Greek philosopher. And late in the evening, as the sun went down and the booze went down, the little Italian fishing boats would be coming back in. You know, I very sadly, like Perry Como, would sing Red Sails in the Sunset.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, it, uh, I'll tell you this because at that time in my life, booze was not only what I wanted, it was what I needed because it made me who I wanted to be and where I wanted to be and how
1: I wanted to be, and why I wanted to be. It changed the way I felt. When we think
2: about that today, that's the only reason that any of us ever drank. Because it changed the way we felt at the time we took the drink. It made us comfortable. It made life livable. While I was in Italy, I experienced one of the most dramatic moments of my life. We read in the big book about a spiritual awakening being synonymous with a spiritual experience. Let me tell you about what happened to me in July of 1944. I was 400 miles behind enemy lines in northern Yugoslavia going into land. We landed on Flare Pass in uh, pastures and unloaded supplies that we couldn't paradrop, and we picked up the wounded of the partisans and brought them back to Italy to the hospital. This particular night we were carrying five gallon cans of gasoline, crates of rifle ammunition, and crates of hand grenades into Tito's partisans. We were nearing the landing area
1: when
2: a German night fighter, a JU-88, ran right up our tail. We didn't know there was another plane within 50 miles of us. And he put four 30 caliber machine guns right on us with tracers. And right now, you talk about remembering how it was. Right now, I can remember those tracers coming by my ear and going into the firewall. And when he got it right on us, he tripped the switches on four 20-millimeter cannon. And in five seconds, that plane was hell in 13%. Immediately, all the control surfaces were burned away. I was sitting on 800 gallons of 100 octane gasoline. And that makes quite a blaze when it goes up. the plane went into an inverted spin. And I gave the order to bail out, and I had snapped on my chest pack, and I got up. And the next thing I know, I'm tumbling in the back end of the airplane with the exploding cargo. No way out. I had the feeling, well, this is it. And all at once, an explosion and a hole opened in the side of the fuselage. And I dived through it. Well, even in tragedy, there's humor, I had snapped my pack on upside down and backwards.
1: <laughs> and
2: as I reached for the D-ring, the ripcord, it wasn't there. And I clawed the chute open. And just as it billowed, completely open, and I began swinging, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. This was in the Dinaric Alps of northern Yugoslavia. And as it spewed gasoline and flaming cargo on down into the valley, I looked up and I was swinging into the side of a sheer uh, rocky part of the mountain. And I stuck my right leg out to brace myself, and I can remember it bending backwards as I slammed in and then crumpled on down into the the ravine below. Now, I don't know how long I lay there, but I woke up frightened. Tingling with anxiety, and I gathered my chute under me and huddled there in the rocks.
1: <clears throat>
2: and the, the whole valley was lighted because of the, the burning wreckage of the plane. And there'd been six of us on that plane when we took off, Medley. Five very good friends of mine were still in it, and I knew this. And I wondered why I was still alive. Why me? Why me? And then the utter horror
1: of fear swept over me. It was the first time in my
2: life I'd ever been alone. Always before somewhere, I had had someone. My boxing coach, my scoutmaster, band director, even my older sister. Always somebody. But I was completely alone, and I was hurt. And I knew I was hurt. And in my teenage desperation, I cried out, what am I going to do? And as I looked at the silhouette of the peaks from the fire in the valley, the words of the psalmist came to me, words that I had set around the supper table after it had been cleared and read with my mother years before, I shall lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from God, that made heaven and earth. And I said, God, I don't know why I'm still alive. Maybe sometime, somewhere you've got something for me to do, but I can't do it here. And I'm hurt. And I'm weak. And it's a long, long ways back but I'll do everything within my power to get back if you'll just help me. And you know it didn't hurt as bad, and it wasn't afraid anymore. Now right then I couldn't walk, but I could crawl and scramble pretty good. And I scrambled on out of that valley because there were trucks down in the valley then, and there were voices that weren't friendly. And it was a long ways back. It was a matter of weeks. But out of this period in my life developed a closeness with God that's indescribable. I had the feeling that God and I walked along together. We waded those cold mountain streams together and he got just as cold as I did and he got blisters on his feet just like I got blisters on my feet. And when we slept in those chicken coops and haystacks, he got lashed just like I did, and we laughed about it. Well, I got back to my outfit and was given the opportunity, evasion rotation, if you were knocked down and got back, they would rotate you back to the States. And I said, no, I believe we'll stay. because I knew if I got back to the States, they'd send me somewhere else anyway. And, uh, I continued to fly, still flying when the Germans gave up, I changed theaters and was still flying when the Japs gave up. I always felt like I kind of cheated on the other boys, you know, because I I had this edge on them. I wasn't alone and I wasn't afraid. And what was happening to me was what God wanted to happen to me. I got back to college.
1: I got the dean's permission to do things.
2: I belonged to a fraternity, and I drove a Buick car, every Friday night, I put on that white collar, white tie, and tails, and I went to a sorority dance, and uh, and then my senior year, I married Nell, married a pretty gal on the campus, you know, and things just went the way they're supposed to go. Lord, I'd come back... uh, barely old enough to buy beer, uh, wearing captain's tracks and three rows of salad up on my tunic, you know. I was pretty great. And then I got out of law school and got this appointment as a government attorney in Tulsa, the oil capital of the world, you know. We lived up there. I had a bunch of fraternity brothers, and we had a lot of fun. And I came back, and I was the youngest judge of the court of record in the state, I used to stand in front of the mirror and sing How Great Thou Art before I even knew there was a song to that name. Now, after we moved back to Warwickon, this is when it all really started, I think, because when I was in college, uh, I underwent a partial silver cure. You know, it's hard to buy that booze bootleg, in Oklahoma was constitutionally dry uh, on the G.I. Bill. It's just hard to b- pay a bootlegger out of the G.I. Bill, especially when you're married. And uh, I didn't have much money saved up, had a little. I got on to law school, but it uh, when I got to be county judge, <clears throat> I'd only been judge about three or four days, and the county attorney and the sheriff came in with what was called an affidavit for a search warrant. I'd never seen one before. And they bring this affidavit to you that says, we think old John Brown's bootlegging. And we want to go search his house and his outbuildings. Well, I read that search warrant. And it says, go do this. You're ordered to do this. And if you find any illegal alcoholic beverage, confiscate it and bring it to me. Now, that's what it said. It says, bring it to me. Well, I thought, what have I got into? (laughs) And so they, a couple hours later, they came back and they had about, uh, I don't know, six or eight lugs of uh, pints,
1: half pints,
2: and uh, the county attorney handed me an order that says go destroy this, it's contraband. So I thought it was a great waste, but they said, this is what we do, and I signed the order, and about... An hour later, the sheriff came in and said, I destroyed a lug of pints in the back seat of your car. So I never went without boots. Uh, Later on, I became, uh, when I became county attorney, was during the drive to uh, repeal prohibition, and we tried to drive to state so people would see what it was without bootleg whiskey, and so they would vote to repeal prohibition. Our, uh, in the courthouse got, it was overflowing with uh, confiscated booze, and I always had plenty. I can tell that now, that statute's limitations run on it, and I'm way down here in Florida.
1: <laughs>
2: but uh, during this period that I began to, to drink too much, my father had had a heart attack, and I was uh, doing his business and my business. Long days, long hours, and I was taking the business home with me at night, mentally, and I couldn't eat my evening meal. I never did eat lunch, I didn't have time, and I found out that if I drank a few drinks before I went home, then I might eat a little something, lay down, and sleep. But I began drinking earlier in the day and drinking more than a few drinks. And I would wake up in the morning and I was sick. I had the worst damn hangovers anybody in the state of Oklahoma when I just got half high. And this is when I found out that I could, you know, take a little and rinse it around in my mouth and swallow it the next morning and make it till 10 o'clock when I could get me another bottle. And this is the way it worked on me. I did things I didn't want to do. I said things I didn't want to say. Things happened to me that I didn't want to happen. And I didn't know how to cope with it unless it was to take a drink and then I'd worry about it
1: tomorrow. As I told you, um, I became county attorney. I was an astute prosecutor.
2: I was good. And people used to point to me with pride, you know, and say, there's a young man that's going places. Uh, but I continued to drink earlier in the day. And my cook de grace two degrees, I was prosecuting two armed robbers who had shot one of the judges. Shot him right between the eyes. And the bullet went into the bone and just came on up around and came out the top of his head. Didn't ever penetrate, penetrate the, the the skull. I've been practicing law before that old man, and i would told people how damn hard-headed he was. <laughs> and finally... <laughs> Finally, they got where they they believed me. But uh, that trial went on longer than it should have. The uh, defense attorney thought he was racehorse hands and took a lot of time. And I began nipping that morning thinking we would be through with the case by noon, and we weren't. So I drank my lunch and uh, went back that afternoon knowing full well we would be through by 2 or 3 o'clock. And it ran up to five or six in the evening and uh came time for the final arguments and uh the defense counsel suggested to the judge since we were running late that we would miss the evening meal and go right into closing arguments well we took a brief recess and i had a few more drinks and uh in my closing argument as i spun on my heel to emphasize a point to the jury where all we had uh tile floor, highly waxed, you know, beautiful floor. And as I spun on my heel, I I fell flat on my big, fat reputation right there in the courtroom. Well, by daylight, everybody in the county knew that the prosecutor had been drunk in the courtroom. The jury was kind enough to give the defendant 67 years, but not because of my prosecution. I put a little notice in the paper after that that I had given the voters and the people my constituents in Jefferson County, ten good years of my life, and I had served them honorably and well. But I was going into private practice, and I was seeking not, or uh, choosing not to seek reelection. Well, <clears throat> you ain't never lived unless you've been a practicing attorney that's an alcoholic. There is never a reason that you don't, or never a day you don't have a reason to drink. If you win a case, you, you got celebrated. If you lose a case, you got to drown your sorrows. Now, I was drinking vodka then, peppermint vodka.
1: <clears throat> Just a minute. <laughs>
2: I had four rooms in my office. filing cabinets in each room. this was Tervorsky, the brand that I drank. And uh, I filed it under tea in all these filing cabinets, you know. I'd have a client in one room and I'd go into another room, you know, and take a big drink and come back. And he always thought he thought I'd just been brushing my teeth, you know. (laughs) Uh, One morning, my dad was back in the office then and he walked up to me and he said, son, are you drinking around the office? I said, yes, sir. He'd given me that long I'd lied to him, but he just caught me totally unaware, you know. And he says, you're drinking vodka, aren't you? I says, yes, sir. He says, well, if you're going to drink around my office, <clears throat> you drink some bourbon or some scotch or some beer, something that smells. I would rather have people know you were drunk than think you were a damn fool. <coughs> Now, this time I had completed uh, my collegiate requirements for a doctorate in jurisprudence. And my dad used to tell me I was educated beyond my intelligence. (laughs) But these were the bad times. These are the times that I like to think back how it was. We had adopted a little boy, Mike little six-year-old boy whose mother died of acute alcoholism, who was a dependent and neglected child by definition because his father was an alcoholic. And we'd taken Mike into our home. And I vowed that Mike wouldn't see me drink. So I drank away from home. He only saw the finished product of the brewer's art. Later, we adopted a little three-and-a-half-pound baby girl. Little Rebecca. Rebecca doesn't remember too much of my drinking, but I can remember her reaction to my drinking. As I would walk into the house, and this little little toddler in pigtails, curlard long curls, clear across the room, she could tell if I'd been drinking, and if I had, she'd turn and walk out. And we had a dachshund dog then, long Sam. And that little dog followed Rebecca around all the time. And, and I'd walk in the front door, and they'd look around the hallway from Rebecca's room, little Rebecca and Sam. And if I'd been drinking, Rebecca would leave. And that dog would start start walking to me and start going back at the same time and be walking in two directions at once. I never will forget that. He'd just make a U-turn. <laughs> But these were bad times in my life. They were times when I saw the sweet young love that Nell and I had, had enjoyed uh, turn to bewilderment, confusion, disbelief even. And little old Mike, little old fellow, just loved me to death at first, and he got where he didn't even want to be around me, and, and I could see the hate and the contempt in his eyes. And, and little Rebecca was afraid of me, I
1: think. I didn't have any friends. I didn't want any friends. I lived pretty good. I owed a lot of money. But I
2: could uh, get me a a fifth of peppermint vodka and sit at my office late at night, pop my feet up on the desk, make great closing arguments to juries, uh, drink that bottle and get out of debt quicker than if I had
1: 15 producing oil wells. Loneliness. I the loneliness. I would wait until everyone
2: in the household had gone to sleep before I'd come home at night, and then I couldn't sleep, and I'd pace the floor, and I'd read, and I'd sweat. It was one of those nights that I was, I was reading book of poetry, and I ran across this one by Robert Service that really identifies with the alcoholic. He says, When you're lost in the wild and scared as a child, and death looks you bang in the eye, when your soul is a boil, it's according to Hoyle to cock your revolver and die. But the code of man says, fight all you can, and self-destruction is barred. You can whimper and cry, it's damned easy to die. It's a keeping on living. It's hard. And you see, at that time, I didn't know about this program of Alcoholics Anonymous that teaches us drunks that are lost in the wild how to keep on living. I had attended one AA meeting when I was county attorney. I had an assistant assistant that had had a problem and uh, was attending in Wichita Falls, Texas. We didn't even have an AA group in in Warwicka. Nobody knew what alcoholism was. We were all just sorry drunks. And he said, since you prosecute these people, you ought to come over and and really try to understand them. And I attended an AA meeting in 1955, 56. 24, 25 years ago. And I still remember what the man said that night. He said, you never have to take another drink if you don't want to. To the alcoholics, he said, you never have to take another drink if you don't want to. If the first thing you do each morning is get up and make an agreement with yourself not to drink, that day, and then ask God to help you, and then thanking that night for another day of sobriety, and do your dead level best to go through each of these 12 steps and live them in your daily life. You never have to take another drink if you don't want to. But you see, I didn't know this at that time. Luckily, <coughs> One of my good friends began attending AA later regularly. He and his wife, she was going to Al-Anon. Realizing the problem that existed in our household, they invited Nell to go to Al-Anon. And I thank God today for Al-Anon. Because because had it not been for the understanding, the warmth, the love, that they showed Nell, We probably wouldn't be here in Panama City Beach today. But I would get in jail. Oh, yes, I've got to tell you about that.
1: Uh,
2: The first time I ever got arrested for being drunk, this deputy that I didn't like pulled up in his little car and he said, Get in. And I said, uh, what's the deal? He says, you're under arrest for public intoxication. Well, I kind of made sport of the situation, and I thought it was funny, and I got in, and he took me down and locked me up, and I spent the night in jail, and I got up the next morning joking about it because I knew this would never happen again. A month or so later, it happened again. And this time I said, This is the last damn time you're going to do this to me. Well, it was probably two months before it occurred again. I said, No, I'm not going this time. I went with you the first two times, but this time I'm just not going. And he says, Yes, you are. I said, No. And he reached over in that seat and he pulled out the longest, blackest looking object that I ever saw in my life. And he says, you're either going with me or I'm sure as hell going to use this. And I says, well, you're sure as hell going to have to. And he sure as hell did. (laughs) The next time this happened with this same deputy, we went through the same song and dance, the, the formalities you know. And when he told me he was going to use that thing again, I hit him. The legislature, the Oklahoma legislature in its wisdom, had enacted a penal statute forbidding assault and battery upon a police officer. And uh, I'm well aware of the pains and penalties of violating this, uh, this statute today because uh, they let me know that some years ago. Today I'm a member of a most esteemed and honored group of gentlemen it's called the Judicial Conference of the State of Oklahoma, an organization of the state trial judges. And I have a unique uh, distinction in this organization. I am the only member that has been locked up in the jail in the county in which he represents 17 times. The. <laughs> uh... The officers in Jefferson County made a vow that they were going to break me. I never did find out whether they meant emotionally, physically, psychologically, or financially, but they almost succeeded in all four categories. The black hand, the Mafia of Sicily, does not know the meaning of the word vendetta. You get a cattle country where all the deputies are ex-cowboys, big-headed, two-fisted, boot-wearing dudes, and all of them get together and say, we're going to get that drunk lawyer. That's vendetta. <laughs> all my good friends around the courthouse, the lawyers, people I'd represented, the county officials, they had a standing joke just loud enough for me to hear. They would say, Well, Cleve was in court today. The other one would say, Yes, as counsel or defendant.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> These were the bad times, the bad times. No one wanted to be around me. You see, I I was in a little plexiglass uh, glass capsule then. None of my emotions could get, like, get out. And none of the love of the world could get in. And I was completely alone in this capsule. And I was a drunk. When I did attend the AA meetings that Nell coerced and threatened and intimidated me to attend, I didn't take part. They'd stand over and look at me and they'd say, Who's that? And I said, well, that's Nell's wife, or Nell's husband. And uh, after I sobered up, I had some cards printed. I think I may still have one or two with me. It says, Cleve Lodge and husband of Alan Nell. Because everybody knew Nell, and nobody cared about me. And I didn't like Alcoholics Anonymous because you couldn't drink the day that you attended the meeting. And that was hell. I got to be kind of like, uh, reputation-wise, kind of like the drunk that got on the bus. This old city bus, you know, that you had to put a dime in that little receptacle. And uh, he got on, and he didn't have a dime. He counted through all of his stuff, so he gave the bus driver a 50-cent piece. And he gave him back five dimes. Well, the drunk dropped them, And he got down on his knees, and he gathered them up. And it was hot, and that old bus was sitting there wheezing, you know. And uh, finally he got the dime into the receptacle, and that old bus driver threw that bus in low and just took off. And this drunk went flopping back down the aisle, you know, and flopped down in a seat right next to a very distinguished-looking gentleman, gray temples, black suit, high black collar, one of these little flat brimmed low-crowned hats, staring straight ahead. And this drunk looked at him and says, Say, hey, you really something? He says, uh, What are you dressed that way for? He says, It is my religion, sir. It's because of my religion. And he says, Yeah, well, what are you? He says, I am a dunkard pastor. And this drunk says, You know, I believe that's what that bus driver called me. Isn't it great that we can look back and laugh? Uh, (laughs) I had as much confusion as anyone, you see, uh, all the time I kept telling myself, well this can't happen to me, I can't be one of them, but I kept doing these things, as I say, that I didn't want to do, and I kept drinking when I didn't want to. Uh, I was kind of like this drunk, same shape I was in, he came in one night, and his wife just gave him little hell, and he said, I've had it. I've had all of this I'm going to have. I'm going to put an end to it all. So he went in, he got his old army, 45, you know, and he put the clip in it, jacked the shell in the chamber, and put it up to his temple. And she said, oh, honey, don't, don't, don't. He said, shut up, bitch, you're next. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't think I really wanted to quit drinking. I wanted the bad things to quit happening. Because, you see, at that time in my life, when they talked to me about quitting drinking, they were talking about quitting living.
1: You think about that.
2: They were talking to me about quitting living. Because booze was the only thing, the only thing, that could get me to where I could make it till I could get another drink. I love the first two and a half pages of chapter five in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, how it works. But did you ever think of the impact that those words might have on the sick, suffering alcoholic sitting there listening to them I know what how it reacted with me. They said, "If you want what we have, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps." I didn't know what the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous had. I didn't know what it offered, and not knowing this, I wasn't willing to pay the price. Our little group in Warwick, Oklahoma, is a fine group Uh, five of us started that group 14 years ago and there's four of us still sober and the fifth one is deceased but he died sober we believe in attending meetings the name of the group is the gypsy group because before we had a group and a place to meet we attended meetings all over north Texas and southern Oklahoma and they'd say well here come those Warika gypsies So when we started our group, we called ourselves the Gypsies. But we have a procedure in our group today. We read the first two and a half pages of chapter 5 at every meeting. And then we turn over to page 100. And we say, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. And then we drop over to page 83 and paraphrase a little bit. We say that the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us, and we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us
1: that which we could not do for ourselves. I didn't know
2: at this time in my life what Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer. One morning in the spring of 1965 I woke up on the couch, still fully dressed, probably appearing much as I do now in my black suit, black tie, white shirt, black high heel boots, and I was sick, very sick. I looked out front and the car was in the driveway. I woke Mel and I said, Mel, <clears throat> you go down and open up the office today, and if anybody wants me, you tell them I'm in Detroit, Michigan. That's what I said, Detroit, Michigan. She took the children <clears throat> and left me there alone. I had neighbors just north of me, neighbors just south of me, neighbors across the street, neighbors behind us. Carpets on the floor, drapes on the window, television, telephone that I could have picked up and called anywhere in the world except the Kremlin. One time I tried that, but I went into the the bathroom when I was sick. I draped myself over the commode until I finally could get strength to get up. And I pulled myself up in front of the laboratory, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I couldn't put a person with the face he looked at me. I couldn't put a person with this image that I knew was me. I didn't know who I was anymore. I knew I wasn't still the, the red-hot fly boy. I wasn't the young government attorney, I wasn't the young judge, I wasn't the prosecutor. I was a drunk that got turkey trotted into what he thought was his own courtroom. I didn't have any friends, I didn't even have God anymore. i would lied to God so many times, you know, wake up in jail, God get me out of this and I'll never take another drink, and then you take a drink before you get home. Uh, I thought God was a CPA. You know, he kept a daily ledger sheet on over lodging down there, you know. he no go, debit, 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 debit. And I was bankrupt. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't know who I was. No, I went back and laid down on that couch. And God granted me a few moments of sanity. And I wondered why I was still alive. Why me? And I was just as alone and just as afraid as I'd been that night on that mountain in Yugoslavia. And in my sheer desperation, I said, what am I going to do? And I heard those same words. I shall lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help. My help cometh from God that made heaven and earth. And I said, God, I don't know why I'm still alive. Maybe somewhere sometime you've got something for me to do, but I can't do it here, and I don't know how far it is back. I just don't know, but it's a long ways. But I promise you I'll do everything within my power to get back if you'll just help me. And you know, I didn't feel as bad, and I wasn't afraid anymore. I went over to the television set and I picked up a little 24-hour book that was laying there. It had been a gift 18 months before at Christmas, from one of my friends. And I opened up this book and, and read for the first time. It said, To Cleave, with lots of faith, hope, and love, A.C. and Agnes. And I turned over to the day, that day and I, and I read the thought for the day and the prayer for the day and the meditation. And I remembered I remembered what this man had said at that meeting way back in the mid-50s, that you don't have to take another drink if you don't want to. Never have to take another drink. If you make an agreement with yourself not to drink this day and ask God to help you, and I made that agreement that day, and I said, God, just help me today, and I thanked God that night. But during the day, I got a red ballpoint pen, and I went to that little book and I put a one on that page. The next morning, the first thing I did when I got up was read the thoughts, the meditation, and the prayer, and make an agreement with myself not to drink. Ask God to help me. wrote a two. This morning, in Howard Johnson's motel, Panama, Beach, Florida, Panama City Beach, Florida. I took that 24 hour book and I read the thought, the meditation, and the prayer. I said, Okay, I'm not going to drink today. God, please help me. I wrote 5,280. That's 14 years, 5 months, and 17 days, one day at a time, and this program will work that way. So many good things have happened since then. I don't know how far it is back. I didn't know I was that far gone, really. But Nell and I had adopted Mike and Rebecca because these wise medical experts had said that she could never bear a child. In uh, 1951, 1968, I'm not thinking that Mike's born fifty one, nineteen sixty eight. You know quit smoking. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh after about three or four weeks, you know, she says, I'm uh, She says, You thought getting off booze was tough. She says, Yeah, this nicotine withdrawal's killing me. She said, My back hurts, my legs ache, and she said my whole physiological makeup is all disturbed. I said, well, go to the doctor and find out what it is. She was pregnant. (laughs) Now, there is no fool like an old fool. And I immediately said, in 1988, my son will win medals in the Olympics. That is, if the proctors at Oxford will let him off to compete, uh, compete because he's going to be a Rhodes Scholar. When Chris was born, a beautiful baby boy. I, I don't know when, not too long after his birth, I became aware that maybe things weren't 120% like they ought to be. And I would stand by that little fellow's crib and
1: uh, tell God to change it. I knew that something was wrong. They call it Down's
2: Syndrome, Mongolism. And I hated that word just like I'd hated the word alcoholism because I didn't know what it meant. But I said, God, you can change anything. Change it. Well and I have had enough hell in our lives. But he did even a greater thing. He changed me so that I could accept that, which I could not change. And Christopher has been the uh, crowning glory
1: in our lives. He goes to public school now. He's slow, yes.
2: But he's just one big bundle of love in its purest form. And I guess it was Christopher that showed me what this is all about. We talk about the merry-go-round of alcoholism, the squirrel cage of alcoholism. It goes faster and faster and faster and faster. And we read how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail. But did you ever stop to think why it works? Why? That's why I am so in love with the theme of your conference, Love and be loved. Alcoholics Anonymous works because Alcoholics Anonymous is a bunch of individual cats of a particular breed that have the capacity to love a slobbering, pinking drunk. And when we come in We are nobodies, no things. We're without human dignity. We're without personhood. And this breed that bind bind themselves together in this fellowship say, You're a child of God. We love
1: you. We love you. And did you know that this drunk, even in his stupor, can realize that he
2: is a somebody? if you tell him that you love him. And to the extent that he can appreciate himself as a somebody, he can respect you as a somebody. And to the extent that he can respect you, he can permit your love to come into him. And to the extent that he can accept your love, he can learn to love you. And it's just like the squirrel cage of the go round of alcoholism, Only this is the squirrel cage of the merry-go-round of recovery. The more we love, the more we can give away, and the more we can give away, the more we can receive. That's why the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works. Many good things have come to pass in my life. Mel and I are the best of friends, and that's good. We travel together, we enjoy each other, we can sit down and talk and enjoy it, something deeper, broader, more profound than we ever dreamed when we were a couple of kids in college. Little old Mike, Mike's now stationed at Key West, Florida, nine and a half years in the Naval Air Force. But when he was at Virginia Beach, he wrote me a letter. He he married a little gal named Rebecca. I have two daughters named Rebecca. And he said, uh, Rebecca and her mother want to have a big church wedding. Will you be my best man because you are? Mike and I have a wonderful relationship. And Rebecca, the little toddler, we asked her at one time, you know, what do you remember, Nell says, what do you remember about your daddy's drinking? She looks right at Nell and says, I remember you hit my daddy. (laughs) But I had the pleasure of taking
1: Rebecca to school. 12 years driving her to school.
2: When she was 15 years and 11 months old, she said, Dad, the kids just can't believe you're not going to get me a brand new car for my 16th birthday. And I said, well, honey, we're just going to have to convince (laughs) them. I didn't want to get her a new car a very selfish reason. You see, I took Rebecca to school every morning, and as I would pull up in front of the building in the driveway, there would be other parents letting their children out. And I observed the other children, as they got out and they slammed the car door and they stomped off into the school with frowns on their face, never... Did I let Rebecca out of the car? But what she said, Have a good day, Dad. I love you. That's part of the way back, too, you know. I got Rebecca her car on her 17th birthday, but
1: uh,
2: <laughs> I hated, to because uh, I really liked that. And little Christopher has grown up in an atmosphere of love. He is love personified. One night he was sitting in Mel's lap, and Christopher really can't enunciate completely properly now, but he was having a little trouble then. his or three years when he called himself Philifer instead of Christopher. And he was sitting in Nell's lap and he said, uh, Rebecca, I love you. Mama, I love you. Daddy, I love you. And Philifer, I love you.
1: <laughs>
2: and really, this is this is what it's all about
1: loving and expecting or asking nothing in return. time two years ago
2: we wanted to visit mike and his wife and two daughters in key west and that's 1800 miles from oklahoma and we couldn't do all of the things that we wanted to do if we flew. And the Lord knows I wasn't going to cram Mel and Rebecca and Christopher and all of our belongings in an automobile and drive down there. So I bought a van. One of these was an extended roof. It's got a potty. It's got a shower. It's got a stove, water supply, a refrigerator. It's really something. And uh, we took that van to Florida. Still got it. But Christopher elected himself as co-pilot, and all the way to Florida, and all the way back, he sat up up front with his daddy. Now, before we left, I had purchased from Reader's Digest an album of tapes called Jukebox Saturday Night, because it had music that I liked. One of the selections on one of the tapes was Matt King Cole singing "Nature Boy." Now I had never liked "Nature Boy" because when it first came out, I associated this with the hippie movement, and uh, I just there was a resentment there. This was the one track on the one tape that Christopher adored. Three days down, (laughs) three days back, we played one part, one track of one tape of Jukebox Saturday Night. I really didn't pay any attention to that tape, it just over and over and over and over. But we had been home for a week or so, and I got in the van to drive to Duncan Court one day. And as I was driving down the road, it was kind of a flashback, and I heard "Nature Boy." The radio tape player wasn't on, and the words just presented themselves to me. Why don't you listen to this? There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, one magic day, he passed my way. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me. The greatest thing you will ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. But I submit to you that Alcoholics Anonymous is also a brotherhood of the second chance where a despairing despondent, and disgusting group like me can learn to love and be loved in return. Thank
0: you. Would you please remain standing those of you who choose join me in the Lord's Prayer. Father, Father, be that name.